Good morning again. Welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. Thanks for joining us here this morning. Well, as mentioned a few moments ago, after a few years away, it is Advent once again at Prairie View. And if you're not familiar with the word Advent, it means appearance or arrival, referring to the appearance or the arrival of Christ. Now, really, Advent happens every year. But our church observes a more formal Advent once every few years, depending on how the Sundays in November and December fall on the calendar. And of course, an important part of this season is the Advent wreath. Now, the practice of the wreath is not as old as you might think, and different Christians use the wreath and its multicolored candles in different ways. In short, there's room for flexibility. So for us, over the next four Sundays, and at our Christmas Eve service on a Saturday, we're going to look at five figures, or five groups of figures, throughout biblical history. And we'll see how they all, in their own way, point our eyes to Jesus' arrival at Christmas. Our figures today are the patriarchs in the book of Genesis, Abraham, Isaac, And Jacob. And as we'll see this morning, they are the recipients of God's greatest promise. And God has fulfilled that promise through sending his son, Jesus. So open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Feel free to use one of our Bibles if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home if you don't have one. But before we go any further, let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together to worship you. Thank you for this time of year that hopefully uh, is a source of joy and peace and celebration for many of us. I pray that it wouldn't be a season purely marked by stress or busyness or worry or financial strain or the other things that tend to come along with Christmas these days. Uh, I do pray that we would Fix our eyes on Advent, the appearance, the arrival of your son, Jesus Christ. And I pray you'd be with us this morning as we read from your word, uh, especially in the book of Genesis. Uh, Remind us that this is where it all starts, uh, that your word is one big story, uh, not two separate stories, Old Testament and New Testament, but one big story that you have written uh, and that you are still bringing to completion. Uh, So, Lord, help us find our place in that story this Advent season, this Christmas season, but every day as well. Again, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who brings us together. Thank you for your spirit, your word, your church, this church. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know about you, but I would argue that few gestures... Social conventions or ceremonies ever created by mankind can match up with the weight, the responsibility, and the solemnity of the pinky promise. If you've ever stepped foot on a playground, you have likely witnessed or participated in this most revered occasion. Maybe it was a secret that you promised to protect a favor that you promise to return, or a deed that you promise to perform 
at great personal risk. And once your commitment was sealed by the pinky promise, you knew that there was no turning back. Because as every civilized person can recognize, the failure to uphold one's pinky promise is an egregious offense that carries devastating moral and perhaps legal consequences. Well, in the book of Genesis, God makes a promise. But God's promise vastly outweighs any pinky promise that's ever been made. I mean, think about it. If God breaks his promises the way we often break ours, he becomes far too much like us. And a God who can fail the way that we fail cannot be trusted. You might even say that a God who breaks his promises, quite frankly, would cease to be God. So it's incredibly important that God keeps his promises, that God uphold his word. And we see him do that with his promise to the three biblical patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So starting with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, we read there. Now the Lord said to Abram, whose name would later be changed to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now we know very little about Abraham before God speaks to him in Genesis 12. He appears to be a normal guy, minding his own business until God starts talking. And God tells this man to pack everything up, And go where he tells him to go. You may notice that God doesn't give Abraham much to work with. He doesn't really set any expectations. He simply expects Abraham to trust and obey. But God doesn't just give Abraham that command. He also issues a grand promise. And that promise revolves around three primary things. First is offspring. Second is land. And third is the blessing of the nations. Offspring, land, and blessing. We'll come back to those. But there are big obstacles to God fulfilling that promise. First of all, Abraham's wife, Sarah, is barren. We learn that in Genesis chapter 11, verse 30. But on top of that, Abraham and Sarah are both old. Abraham is 75 at the time God first speaks in chapter 12, verse 5. At the age of 99, Abraham is still waiting for God to fulfill his word in chapter 17, verse 1. By then, Sarah is a full-fledged 90, according to verse 17. 
So no wonder this elderly couple laughs at the idea of God giving them a child. But time and time and time again, God reaffirms that promise. And time and time and time again, Abraham trusts and obeys. Now, that's not to say that Abraham was perfect. He comes across as a real slime ball in chapter 12 when he deceptively offers his wife to Pharaoh to save his own skin. And then does basically the same thing again in chapter 20. In chapter 16, Abraham goes along with Sarah's plot to produce offspring by their own means, rather than trusting in God's provision. And then in chapter 21, Abraham casts Hagar, the slave he slept with at Sarah's urging. And he casts out Ishmael, his own son from Hagar's womb. He casts them into the wilderness to die. Abraham was not perfect, to put it mildly. Nevertheless, God keeps his promise. Sarah miraculously gives birth to Isaac. Abraham dwells in the land. And as for blessing the nations, well, that will come. So in the end, Abraham's legacy is one of great faith, trust, Obedience to God and his promises after a long wait, and sometimes in spite of himself. It's hard to trust God, especially when we have to wait, isn't it? It's hard to trust God's promise to never leave or forsake us when suffering seems to be more present than he is. It's hard to trust God's promise to grow us in holiness by his power when sin seems to hang on so tightly for so long. And it's hard to trust God's promise that Christ will return when we've been waiting some 2,000 years already. But Abraham's faith in God's promise was not in vain. In fact, his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Likewise, your faith in God's promises will not be in vain, even when it seems like they are a long time coming. I love the Lord of the Rings books because I'm a pastor and I have to. But I once heard someone describe the movies as nine hours of people walking. Harsh, but accurate. Well, in many ways, the Bible, especially the Old Testament, is one giant story, not about people walking, but about people waiting and waiting and waiting some more. But when we're waiting on God to fulfill his promises, we do not wait in vain. Now let's talk about patriarch number two. That is Isaac. Abraham's promised baby boy seems to be quite different from his father. Comparatively, we know very little about Abraham's backstory. 
while Isaac's birth is a much anticipated miracle. But then after Isaac is born, we don't learn much about him at all. There's one touching moment when Isaac prays for his barren wife, Rebecca, in Genesis chapter 25. And God does appear to Isaac and reaffirm his promise in chapter 26. We read in verses 23 and 24. From there, Isaac went up to Beersheba and the Lord appeared to him that same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. The torch is clearly passed from Abraham to Isaac. But when people list heroes of the Old Testament, a list that almost always includes Abraham, Isaac probably doesn't come to mind compared to some other biblical figures But he also doesn't have many obvious virtues or achievements to write about. As a result, Isaac appears as a kind of transitional, a kind of placeholder character in the story. Isaac is often a passive figure. An old saying amongst Halliburton men when our wives take charge of things is that we're just along for the ride. With my kids' birthday parties, I'm just along for the ride. I have no idea what's happening. Olivia is the brains of the operation, and if you have questions, you need to talk to her. Well, throughout his life, Isaac seems to be just along for the ride. He almost gets sacrificed in chapter 22. Other people find a wife for him in chapter 24. He's deceived by his own wife and son in chapter 27. Just along for the ride. Isaac is usually referred to as Abraham's son or Jacob's father throughout Genesis. Because apparently, apart from Abraham, who came before him, and apart from Jacob, who came after him, Isaac has almost no unique Identity. So if Abraham was a normal guy who became a hero of the faith, it seems like Isaac is kind of just there. And as amazing as God's promises are, the means that he uses to fulfill them often aren't. I mean, look at the church. God says that we are a royal priesthood. A holy nation in the book of Hebrews. The church is God's primary means of accomplishing the great commission to make disciples of all nations. But we can't even get all the lights on the Christmas tree to come on. And look at Christmas. God uses a boring old government census to get Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem. The birthplace of the king of the universe is Rustic, to put it nicely. And the first worshipers of Jesus are blue-collar shepherds. God issues some majestic promises in the Bible. But he often carries them out through unimpressive and unexpected means or agents. Like the unremarkable Isaac. 
but they are still God's promises. And God still keeps them. That brings us to our final patriarch of the morning. Genesis chapter 28, starting in verse 10, we read about Jacob. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, that should ring a bell, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. We've heard that before. And you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Compared to faithful Abraham and boring Isaac, Jacob marches to the beat of his own drum. Like Abraham, a large portion of Genesis is devoted to Jacob. And like Isaac, his father, he was born to a barren woman. But one thing that sets Jacob apart from the other two patriarchs is his penchant for conflict. He fights with his twin brother before they can even fully exit the womb. He gets in arguments with his own family. He deceives his friends. In chapter 32, Jacob wrestles with God himself. Jacob's very name carries the connotation of trickster. Some might prefer to call him a scoundrel. Sorry, Jacob. In some ways, that makes Jacob an opposite of Abraham. Abraham was imperfect at times, but ultimately faithful. Jacob appears to be faithful at times, but often imperfect. But like Abraham and like Isaac, Jacob is the conduit of God's promise. Even with all of his missteps, his conflicts, his questionable motives, God's promise lives on through Jacob. And what were the three main parts of that promise? We saw them all in chapter 28 once again. Offspring. Now it was during and immediately after Jacob's life that God's promise appeared to be in the most jeopardy. Through a long and winding series of events that we're currently studying in our Friday morning men's breakfast, Jacob and his family end up in Egypt. 
At first, it's by choice and necessity. But with time, they become slaves by force. Now, there were lots of them in Egypt. The offspring part of the promise is clearly fulfilled. But what about the land? They had nowhere to call home at that point. And what about blessing the nations? They were just trying to stay alive with Pharaoh breathing down their necks. At times, it may appear that God's promises are on the brink of failure. Maybe something in our lives goes horribly wrong, and we fear that God has fallen asleep at the wheel. We worry that God isn't as trustworthy as we thought he was. But God's promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would not die in Egypt. Because God does not forget his word. God does not forget his people. And God keeps his promises. So the patriarchs, though often lumped together, were three very different men. But one thing they had in common was that they were all recipients. They were all carriers of God's promise. And no matter how they succeeded or failed, no matter how they obeyed or disobeyed, no matter how much they should be admired or criticized, God's promise lived on through them. Because God keeps his word. Even if we have to wait a long time, even if the means are less than impressive, And even when it appears that the promise is at risk of being stamped out, God keeps his promise. We learned that lesson from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But we also learn that lesson every Christmas. Because ultimately, God's promise to the patriarchs finds its true fulfillment In Christ's arrival. Offspring. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians 3 verse 29. That it's by faith in Christ. That Abraham's children are born. What about land? Hebrews 11 tells us that there is a promised land to be had. That's only accessible thanks to Jesus. And as for blessing of the nations. We read in Romans 4 that Jews and Gentiles alike can be forgiven of their sins by faith in Jesus Christ. At one time in the Old Testament, it appeared that God's promise to the patriarchs had been fulfilled. In the days of King David and King Solomon, there were lots of offspring living in the promised land, serving as a blessing and a light to all the nations. But because of their sin, it all came crashing down in spectacular fashion. It turns out that something else, someone else, better than Abraham, better than Isaac, better than Jacob, better than David, better than Solomon... Someone else would be the true fulfillment of God's promise in Genesis. 
And that someone arrives, appears, advents at Christmas. The promise would be well worth the wait. Because God's people wouldn't just get a human deliverer. We'd get a savior who is fully God and fully man. The promise would be carried out through some, frankly, unimpressive means. A poor, unmarried girl who is clearly pregnant but claims to still be a virgin. And the promise would appear to be dead in the water at moments. One King Herod would be out for baby Jesus' head. Another King Herod would eventually get the adult Jesus nailed to a cross. But the patriarchs remind us that God keeps his promises. Christmas reminds us that God keeps his promises. Easter reminds us that God keeps his promises. And in a world full of cheap, broken promises and playground pinky promises that realistically don't mean that much. We can trust God. If he kept his promises in the past, he will keep them now. He will keep them always. He will keep them forever. But the truth is, the promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob stems from the promise that God made much earlier in the book of Genesis. Further back in chapter 3, shortly after Satan leads Adam and Eve into sin, dragging us and the whole world with them, God made a promise. Genesis 3, starting in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The first promise, this first gospel, sets the stage for everything that follows. In this big book, God has kept his promise to send someone to defeat the devil once and for all, to reverse the curse of sin and death. And that person is Jesus Christ. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob didn't fully realize it at the time, but they looked forward to his coming. We look back at his coming every Christmas, and we look forward to when he will come again. And what makes us so confident in that truth? Well, it's because we know that God keeps his promises. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for the opportunity to worship you, the opportunity to address you in prayer, even. I pray we would not take that for granted. Thank you that you are our powerful, righteous Lord, and you are our good, loving Father. 
Thank you that we are your servants and that we are your children. And Lord, thank you that you keep your promises. It's not hard to come up with examples of failed promises. Every single one of us in this room can think of a time when someone didn't keep a promise that they made us. Or when we ourselves failed to keep a promise that we made. But Lord, thank you that in that way, you are not like us. You keep your word. You fulfill your commitments. You are perfectly trustworthy, perfectly faithful. And Lord, I pray that knowing that truth would give us great peace and joy and hope and confidence, even as we so often fall short. Thank you that you have promised to send a Savior, and that you have already sent that Savior, and that one day you will send that Savior again. Be with us this Advent, this Christmas season, as we look back at Jesus' birth, as we look forward to Jesus' return. Help us be faithful in the time as we wait, as we hope, as we trust. And Lord, I pray that you give us patience, give us confidence, give us peace of mind that you haven't failed in the past, you didn't let Abraham and Isaac and Jacob down, and you won't let us down either. You keep your promises, you fulfill your word, and one day we will see that in the fullest, truest sense. Find us faithful when that day comes. We love you, we praise you, we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.